0: Now, before we get into the text itself, by way of review, we've been studying the book of Revelation, of course, which is the only book of the Bible that promises a special blessing to the student. No other book of the Bible has the audacity to do that. Also, the Revelation is the only book in the Bible that gives you a divinely inspired outline of the book. In in, uh, verse 19 of chapter 1, it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, namely the vision of chapter 1. Write the things which are, and that's what we're into right now, Revelation 2 and 3. Then write the things which shall be hereafter. And that's from chapter 4 on. So it's divided into three parts, not of equal size, and perhaps not of equal relevance, certainly not to us, because the part we're in now, Revelation 2 and 3, is the most relevant portion for you and I. The other stuff's going to get interesting and stuff, but frankly, in many ways, we could regard it as academic because of circumstances that will become very clear as we get into it. But we're right now in in seven epistles that Jesus himself dictated. When we think of the New Testament, we often think of 21 epistles in the New Testament. 14 ascribed to Paul, if you count Hebrews, and then the seven so-called general epistles, making 21. Everybody forgets there's seven more that everybody overlooks. Seven penned not by Paul or, or, or Peter or whoever, but by Jesus himself. So they're interesting epistles. And one of the things that I'm hoping you'll carry away, we'll be sharing with you some views Uh, The views uh, are certainly not in agreement, but we do have some views about it. We'll be sharing those. But the main thing to carry away is not the views so much as a respect for the text. The one thing I hope you do get out of our relationship together is an awesome respect for the precision of the text itself. I think more people get into deep theological trouble when they start allegorizing. As a, a systems engineer, as a guy who comes out of the technology community, The thing that's drawn me to Scripture with the great discovery of my life is the realization that these 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years are a message system, an integrated whole, and has its origin from outside time. That becomes very vivid once you start respecting it and realize that every every detail is there by design. And so I submit that as our basic approach, our basic hypothesis. It's obviously a doctrine of inerrancy, but it goes far beyond that, really. If you don't hold those views fine, regard me as a nut, you're probably correct, but at least you'll know where I'm coming from. And I invite you to take that approach as we uh, get into this unique book. And, of course, the book of Revelation is difficult only because of two reasons, probably. One is that people have a willingness to allegorize with it, which is usually an error. Not always, but usually. The second reason it's so difficult is because the 404 verses of the book of Revelation contain over 800 references from the Old Testament alone. So the book of Revelation presumes a command of the rest of the scripture. In fact, one of the things that convinces you of that is simply to study the book of Revelation with a concordance And every time you come across some phrase you don't understand, take a concordance and see where else that phrase occurs in the Scripture, and it will just unfold before you. You'll also discover after we get from chapter 4 on, the book gets very Jewish, which is very strange. And we'll talk about that as we get there. But now we're in these seven letters. We've noticed that each letter has a particular theme. Each church they're represented has a particular complexion, a a particular uh, attribution. We also have discovered that each letter has at least four levels of meaning. A local or immediate uh, application, these were literal churches with real problems in its day, and those are not to be missed. But also, the Holy Spirit addresses all seven churches to all churches. In each letter, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So, every letter here has an application to all churches. One of the things we discover as we go through these letters carefully, each church has a misconception or misperception of where it stands. That's rather sobering. Every church there, even the good ones didn't realize how good they were, the bad ones didn't realize how bad they were, but in each case, their own perceived position is quite at variance with the view that Jesus Christ has of that church and that's rather provocative for many reasons one of the reasons it's provocative is to realize there was a deterioration in the church by the end of the first century we're talking about ad 95 98 depending on what expert you're talking about but that's roughly when when uh, john penned this book when he was given these visions and already the church is under criticism now that gives us pause that means that we should very be very cautious at drawing doctrinal concepts from the uh, Antonicene fathers or the other church fathers that wrote in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, because by then the church has deviated from what Christ intended, at least by some measure. We discover as we examine this problem carefully, your only reliable authority for what Christ intended for the church is the New Testament record, primarily the book of Acts. And in many respects, the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are corrections back to, those, to that kind of a center line, if you will. So that's kind of interesting. Anyway, there's four levels of meaning. One's local. One is admonitory, the one I just mentioned. A third level is to us personally. The Holy Spirit says, he that hath an ear. And each one of us in this room has an ear. So it's reduced to per, at the personal level. So and that's really why we're probably here, not just to edify and understand, but also to apply it to our personal lives. And what you need to really get hold of is all seven letters apply to each of us. And it's going to be very easy for us to look at certain of these letters and at least visualize how they seem to be aimed at those other people. Rest assured, we'll have something in the study to offend everyone. No one will be overlooked. We'll have something to disturb uh, most of us here. And uh, probably last uh, session was probably the most volatile of that kind. We talked about Ephesus. That was the the, the church that was very strict about keeping heresy outside the church, but they lost their first love. They lost their sense of devotion uh, to our Lord. Too busy on his business to have time for the king. Smyrna was the suffering church. The whole letter had a pallor of death over it. Smyrna means myrrh, which is crushed, to give off its fragrance, and it's an embalming ointment. And indeed, Christ doesn't promise them to be to, to to be delivered from the persecution simply to be faithful through it and so smyrna is the suffering church if you will pergamus is the church that marries the world that marries the world where what satan could not accomplish by from the outside he accomplished by you know, if you can't look him join him kind of thing he had the church marry in the, uh, typically measured from constantine on indeed the church became a state church, unregenerate people were drawn into its ranks and in its senior offices, and it pretty soon became nothing more than Christian relabeling of pagan customs, and uh, that was tragic. Now Thyatira that we took up last time, earlier name of the city was Semiramis. It actually carries us one step further into a, a direct idol-worshiping form of uh, would-be Christianity. And Jesus, in, in, uh, in uh, these letters, adopts idioms from the Old Testament. In the, in the previous letter, he had talked about Balaam. In Pergamos, we talked about Balaam. But you understand that allusion by going back and really understanding Balaam. In Thyatira, he speaks of Jezebel, the Phoenician queen of Ahab. He was, she was uh, really bad news. In fact, uh, probably brings Israel to its worst point spiritually in the entire Old Testament. And we noticed last time how Jezebel acquired lands for the king through the Inquisition. He wanted a vineyard belonging to Naboth, and what Jezebel was real upset because Naboth wouldn't sell it. Jezebel says, Don't sweat it, I'll handle it, and has him accused falsely, tried, convicted, and all his and killed, and his lands possessed on behalf of the king. And as we read that little incident about Naboth's vineyard, we begin to get the idiomatic application at least of what transpired in a major portion of church history when the church in its quest for temporal power adopted these same techniques and these techniques are still going on today that shocks many people they don't realize that but in any case we we spent some time last time talking about uh, the Thyatira church which most scholars now again uh, what uh, there, I, I said there are four levels local and, monetary and personal is a fourth level and that's a prophetic level Many scholars I'm among them but many scholars tend to notice that these seven churches lay out church history if these letters were in any other order it wouldn't be true but it's interesting that as we the more you examine these letters and the more you familiarize yourself with the the real history of the church most of us, Unless you've done some study, are really quite ignorant of it. We haven't bothered, we only have glimpses of it from our experience. But uh, the history of the church is a bloody, bloody history. In fact, I think you could easily say that most of the history of Europe, for the last 1500 years at least, is a bloody history that's occasioned primarily by the struggle between Rome attempting to gain temporal power, and those that were trying to resist that or counteract it. That doesn't put the right on either side. It just means that the real the real bloodshed, which is incredible, uh, is, it, it has been over these issues. Now, last time in in reviewing the background of Thyatira, we did do a summary of the the uh, rise of Constantine and then the third emperor after him who made, it wasn't Constantine, it was the third emperor after him, that made Christianity the state religion. There's a lot of debate about Constantine's actual conversion. There's reason to believe he actually was worshipping the sun god, but he packaged it anyway in Christian terms and indeed encouraged Christianity among, on his staff and, and, and claimed that uh, for himself. And it was uh, two emperors later that actually made Christianity the state religion of the empire. Constantine was so fed up with the paganism of Rome, he moved the world headquarters to Byzantium and there was a struggle, ultimately, uh, after five centuries, between the Eastern, Eastern Church, headquartered Byzantium, and Rome, the Roman Church, which is rising to power. The rise of Islam, of course, really ha- takes its toll in the East. When Rome fell politically, that left little fiefdoms that the Pope could negotiate with, and that turned out to be actually... A favorable wind uh, for the the Pope. But we went through that to the uh, darkest period of the Papacy, which is roughly the the year 1000, give or take a couple, and I won't go through all of that here, other than to point out that along the way, things go from bad to worse. We have some very, very tragic um, moral circumstances in the Vatican. And that leads us, actually there were a number of events that preceded this, but generally the key event starts probably in the year 1483 in Eisleben, Saxony. There was a baby boy born to a coal miner and the boy, recognizing the poverty of his father, resolved not to to take up another career than coal mining. So he decided to become a lawyer. In 1501 he entered the University of Erfurt, where he excelled in his studies. At the end of his schooling in 1504, an event occurred that changed his life. He was walking across the campus and got trapped in a Very, very unusual thunderstorm. In fact, so violent that he was in fear of his life. His lightning was striking literally right around him. So instinctively he cried out to the patron saint of the coal miners and said, Saint Anne, save me from the lightning. If you save me, I'll become a monk. Well, the storm stopped pretty soon. And he's a man of his word, so he decided to do just that. He withdrew from law school and entered uh, a monastery and applied himself diligently. He obtained a a doctorate of theology in just a few years. But the more he studied, the more troubled he became. He became obsessed, really, with how to redefine God. He was very conscious of his personal depravity, his tendency towards sin, and he devoted himself with extreme intensity to a life of devotion. He would fast 10 to 15 days at a time. When temperatures were below freezing, he would sleep outside without a blanket. Uh, between his studies, he would beat his own body, black and blue and bleeding, which was uh, not an unusual style in those days. Uh, this is typical inheritance from the medieval church. He became very introspective. In any case, um, he finally decided to make a pilgrimage to Rome in the hope of finding this peace that he looked for so intensely. And he, and he set out on foot and crossed the Alps. He almost died of high fever, but in a monastery there where he, the brothers nursed him back to health, one a wise monk advised him to read the book of Habakkuk, which he did. And it turns out um, Habakkuk had the same struggles that this young man did in many ways. And, you know, if there's, if there's God as good, why does he allow suffering. And uh, if there really is a devil, why, God, why doesn't God just obliterate him? And so forth. All these classic questions. But there was one verse that captured his attention. Habakkuk 2.4 The just shall live by faith. And that verse occupied his mind. He recovered finally enough to go to Rome. But while in Rome, and I won't bore you with all the details, he suddenly, that verse, lifted the fog in his mind. He left Rome, went back to Wittenberg, and to explore this issue, that the just shall live by faith. He ultimately, of course... Nails 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg, and started the movement that's probably the most important event of modern history, the Reformation. His name, of course, is Martin Luther. The leadership, of course, didn't like the implications of what he was advocating, so they had a council in those days, the Diet of Worms. That's not what it sounds like. Diet is a council, and Worms was the town it was held in, and they ultimately excommunicated him as a heretic. He was given actually 60 days uh, to recount, uh, either retract what he was trying to sell or die, and he refused. Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which included Germany, Spain, Netherlands, and Austria, summoned him to appear. Under penalty of death, he says, uh, here I stand. I can do not else, so help me God. Now, fortunately, they, he was popular enough with some of the German princes, so they were able to protect him, and he was able to escape the death penalty per se. But he launches, of course, he was really the spark plug that caused the Reformation, which had actually started in many ways in, in, earlier, but it, was, it just uh, ignited a, the flame of the Reformation across Europe. And as, as the Reformation caught fire, Rome's answer was, of course, the Jesuits and the Inquisition. And uh, we'll take up some of this at another time, but you, because we'll, we'll, we're going to deal with this in some depth when we get to Revelation 17. This starts then several centuries of war, in effect, between the Roman interests, the various uh, fiefdoms that were loyal to Rome, and the various fiefdoms that were uh, opposed to Rome, and bloody, bloody wars uh, start, the, the wars on the Protestants. Uh, war on the German Protestants from 1566 to 1609. On the process of the Netherlands, in the same period, Huguenot Wars in France, Philip's attempt against England, the Thirty Years' War, which laid the seeds for what we're presently seeing in Bosnia and Herzegovina and all that business. These were all started typically by Catholic kings urged on by the the Pope and the Jesuits for the purpose of trying to crush the uh, Protestantism. The thousands of years of pagan Caesars are dwarfed by the millions that were murdered under the Vatican in this period. The Reformation continues, of course, in uh, Switzerland. A guy by the name of John Knox studies in Calvin and goes to Scotland and really makes Scotland what it is today. Bo- in Bohemia, there were 4 million population, 80% Protestant in 1600. When the Habsburgs and the Jesuits had finished their work, only 800,000 were left, and they were all Catholics. In austrian Hungary, half the population were Protestant, all were slaughtered. In John Knox in Scotland, he was convinced that the future of Protestantism was bound up in the alliance between Protestantism, Protestant England and Protestant Scotland, and it was through his leadership that they were able to expel the French and thus the Roman interest there. So, the whole history gets uh, colored by these issues. We'll talk about that a little in more depth at another occasion. But the main point is is that we have then, of course, this sweeping reform across Europe, and then thus obviously gets exported to America. Uh, uh, various segments of the Protestant Reformation. What's happened to it? Well, it became denominations, whether the Presbyterians or the Methodists or Lutherans, and within each one of those, the various little fragments. It's amazing what people found to disagree about, and it fractionates and fractionates, and the early vitality of the church, even in those early days of persecution, eventually becomes, to varying degrees, a matter of uh, denominations and formalism, and in many, many cases, forms without substance a comfortable church. And it's, I'm, I'm giving this background here that, uh, because um, it's relevant to our continuing in the seven letters. One comment I will make, um, and we'll talk about this in more depth later anyway, we'd like to make it now. One of the most significant events in five centuries occurred uh, last year, on March 29th. In the views of many, there was a joint declaration, evangelicals and Catholics together, the Christian mission in the third millennium. And the compromise of the gospel is viewed by many as lying at the heart of this agreement where the Catholics and the Protestants agree to just get along fine and each one saved and let's not evangelize each other. That raises some provocative questions. Does that mean that the many millions that, that were tortured to death and burned at the stake through these wars died because of misunderstanding? It's a real interesting issue. Now, there are some that will argue that that agreement really was just intended to share common causes politically, that is, to jointly work against abortion, those kinds of things. But actually, the document is much broader than that, especially when you understand the official policy of the Vatican to this day, which still includes um, the persecution of the Protestants in countries where they have a dominant uh, voice. Now, what's really surprising is on May 21st of 1995, at at a Soviet airfield... Abandoned Soviet airfield in uh, Moravia, the battleground of uh, one of the battlegrounds of the 13 Years War in the 17th century, to a crowd of less than 100,000 people. The Pope asks forgiveness for the wrongs of the Catholic Church against the Protestants. Amazing! In the better part of almost 2,000 years, the Pope has acknowledged the need for that and begs forgiveness. You say, "Gee, that isn't that exciting? What a major milestone!" Yes, it's also a shrewd move in terms of uh, positioning him for the ecumenical. Uh, opportunities forthcoming. Today, I, Pope of the Church of Rome, in the name of all Catholics, ask forgiveness for the wrongs inflicted on non-Catholics during the turbulent history of these peoples. Interesting statement for the Pope to make. So we'll see what all that means, and we'll see it more clearly when we get to Revelation 17. And what did the Pope mean by the coming millennium, and what's, what's, what's on his agenda? We'll see. And I believe that the woman is preparing to ride the beast, and we'll see what that means when we get to Revelation 17. But in the meantime, with this kind of a review of last time, let's jump in and read. First of all, let's just read through the letter to Sardis, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works complete or perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I shall come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Letter to Sardis. Now, Sardis, before we get into the implications of the letter, let's recognize that Sardis is a literal place. It was then, it still is, actually, in a modest way. 700 years before this letter was written, before John penned this, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world. It's reputed to be one of the oldest cities in Asia. Greek, several Greek writers make uh, mention it of the city of renown. It probably dates back to more than 2000 B.C., it was the ancient capital of the Lydian Empire, that's about 1200 BC, and the residence of the royal dynasty uh, of the Myrmanes. It had a strategic location between Pergamos, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, and Phrygia. It favored, that favored its commerce, and it became a very wealthy city. Gold and silver Lydian staters were the first coins that we know of in the world. The earliest coins were thus about the 6th century BC, by the way. Uh, we're from uh, Sardis. At its zenith of power, its king, it w- uh, the king uh, was a god by the name of Croesus, whose name has since become synonymous with wealth. Also, its river, by the way, uh, Pactolus, has also become idiomatic of wealth for some proverbial reasons. Its patron uh, deity was uh, the goddess Sibylle, known as Diana in Ephesus her son was known as Midas. You've probably heard of the Midas touch that comes from the, the fables that surround this wealthy but effeminate king of Phrygia. Uh, his fable, you know, every, everything he touched turned to gold. And he repented of that, so they told him to get in the river, and that's why the river is also associated with, with gold. Now, the town, the primary town, was situated on a thousand-foot uh, plateau above the valley. It appeared to be impregnable because the town was... Uh, there were cliffs on three sides. It was only accessible by one side, and if you guarded that, presumably you were immune because of the these uh, apparently unscalable cliffs. However, these uh, cliffs are really made of a clay that continually erodes. The untrustworthy mud you know left cracks that uh, could be exploited. We're going to discover that the city of Sardis was characterized through history as. Um, uh, the, uh, the character of its inhabitants adopted this attitude of overconfidence, false confidence, uh, appearance without reality, promise without performance, outward appearance of strength that was betrayed by a lack of watchfulness and diligence. I'll give you an example. Croesus, the king of Lydia, was attacked by the Persians, Cyrus the Persian, about 549 B.C., they left unguarded the three sides that were these precipitous cliffs on the presumption that they were not scalable. After a siege of 14 days, Cyrus offered a reward to any man who could find a way of scaling the apparent le- these unguarded but presumably unscalable cliffs. One of his soldiers, Hierides, noticed by watching that a Lydian soldier dropped his helmet. And he watched him as he found a way to climb down to retrieve his helmet. So he realized that it was possible... To climb up. So the next night, they traced those steps, and he took a, a, uh, an attack party and uh, clambered over the embattlements of the city, and they took the city. And uh, it's interesting, Hegel is famous for saying that history teaches us that man learns nothing from history, because the Sard- Sardians did not learn their lesson. They fell to the Persians, as I've just described, and a few centuries later, 214 B.C., those same cliffs were susceptible to a hazardous climb. Lagoras repeated the same exploit, and the city was taken by um, Antiochus in another era several centuries later. But again, the same technique, the presumption of being impregnable but and thus becoming characterized by false confidence. So the, the defenses of Sardis were really appearance without reality. The, uh, they were betrayed by not being watchful. Not being diligent. And it's in, I'm mentioning that because it is character, that is the character of Sardis in literature. And it's interesting that also may give us a clue to some of the tone of the letter to Sardis by our Lord. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament period, the ancient splendor of Sardis had disappeared. Um, they had a big earthquake in about 17 A.D. caused major damage. Um, and today, the little town of Sardis, it has ups and downs through history, but the little town has only fragments there of its ancient glory. Okay, so let's jump into the letter itself. Verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now again, we recognize the style here. Jesus selects from chapter 1 of Revelation one of the many labels that were there introduced of him. And one of these strange labels, strange to our ears perhaps, is this idea of the seven spirits of God. Gee, I thought there was a trinity. I thought there was a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You're absolutely right. But if you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, just by way of review, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you may recall that in verse 2 of Isaiah 11, Isaiah adopts a mode of description of the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Seven being a number meaning completeness. Not divine, but completeness. And so we have the complete Spirit of God here profiled, if you will, in verse 2 of Isaiah 11. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, Spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. Sevenfold Spirit of God. A strange idiom in our ears, and yet we find it introduced in chapter 1 and here again used as a label. And also, we have him allude to the seven stars. Remember, the seven stars are identified at the end of chapter one as the seven churches, or the seven angels of the seven churches. And so we have an interesting assertion. Each time that Jesus selects a a label of himself to be the author of the letter to each of the seven churches, the label relates to the content of the letter. And here he's uh, making mention of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we might ask ourselves, why does he do that? After you read the letter understand the letter, you can go back and see that. Why does he pick that particular attribution? And it's interesting to me just to stand back and watch the present church profile on the horizon. Most denominations are very, very uptight about the whole idea of the Holy Spirit. Very comfortable dealing it in broad terms, but you take those particular denominations, other denominations perhaps are accused at least of overemphasizing it. But it's interesting that the issue of the Holy Spirit is one of the divisions, if you will, in the church today. Uh, so a lot of pastors would get extremely upset when they see a gift of healing within the congregation. I had a close relative that had such an experience, a miraculous healing at a healing service. One of these things that uh, that you normally wouldn't go to unless a friend dragged you to. And yet, there's a miraculous, visible healing at the service when she shared it with the pastor. The pastor was very grateful, glorified God, but asked her to leave the congregation. Because he didn't want to have to deal with the implications that that might bring into his fellowship. And there are many, many things of this kind that you may be aware of. So it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is perhaps as divisive today as a doctrine... As the doctrine of Christ himself was uh, in some context years ago. How interesting that is. So, Jesus here, though, chooses to emphasize that particular aspect. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven stars, also the Holy Spirit and, and, uh, and the, the control that is implied in chapter one, if you recall his dealing with that then. Then we have this opening of the report card I know thy works. And he's, it's interesting. Thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Now, when you first read this, it disturbs you. But if you studied the structure of these letters, it should disturb you more. Because you'll notice that in five of the seven letters, there is a... We get to this part of the letter, there's usually the good news. In each letter, Jesus says, you did this, 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 and this right, but you got to deal with this. In this case... This is one of the two letters of the seven of which nothing good is said. And I'm intrigued by that because obviously any uh, competent Bible scholars as they read Thyatira can have a field day if they know anything about church history trying to uh, uh, tar the Catholics because there's a lot of uh, vulnerability there. What they tend to forget is that the letter to Thyatira says, I know thy works in charity and service and faith and patience in thy works, and the last to be more than the first. That's not bad beginning. He then gets into Jezebel and all the other problems. But the point is, there's some good news there. There has been faithfulness. There have been works. And the later, better than the former, and so on. We get to Sardis. If if, if Thyatira is is the papacy, then most Protestant commentators would say, gee, Sardis is the Reformation. Well, that's interesting. Because there's not much said good here. I can't find anything between verse 1 and verse uh, 1b, if you will. I know thy works, and that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Wait a minute, gang. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I, for one, most of us have at least some portion of our Christian experience had a primary identification with one of the so-called Protestant denominations, I assume. And that pinches. And yet, let's see what it says. You'll notice, throughout this letter, the word name appears over and over and over again. The word name. And uh, it's onoma. And it's a word uh, from the Greek that means denominationalism. Labeling. And being covered by a name. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. And then we have, Be watchful, and strengthen things which remain, for they are, re- that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works complete before God. The word perfect there uh, is misleading in our vocabulary, the per- it, not perfected, if you will, not completed, is what is the thought. Now that's rather interesting. See, most of us, if we study the Reformation, it was a dramatic, heroic period. Because through the leadership of Luther and others, they really returned from the heresies they were brought up under over several, many centuries, back to the Bible. The Bible was the, 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 the guide for all these different groups. They um, really emphasized this whole issue of salvation by faith, not works. So they did do a fabulous, heroic job getting back to sound doctrine from a biblical, on a biblical basis. And many other doctrines we could talk about. But it's interesting, people who study the Reformation carefully can recognize that there are some failures that linger to this day. One of the things that occurred very early in the Roman period of the church as even the church became, under Constantine and successors, became, quote, a Christian community, they were very uncomfortable with this idea that Jesus was to come back and rescue the world from its evil rulers. That wasn't very popular with those that apparently were the evil rulers. So a theologian by the name of Oregon had already started this idea of allegorizing things. Well, what this really means is X rather than Y, that sort of thing. And Augustine picked up on that, and what they decided, what they started talking about is, well, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And really it's the church that's going to inherit, you know, to rule the world by becoming better and better and so forth. That the challenge of the gospel was to Christianize the whole world and, and make it a better place and that sort of thing. You can't argue with the intent, and yet that isn't the biblical picture. So what they started doing, the idea that Revelation talks about, we'll get to that later in the book, is that Jesus is to return on the planet Earth to rule for a thousand years. That thousand-year period is called by theologians, the word for a thousand, a millennium. If you believe what Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, when he announced to Mary the birth of Jesus, he said he will sit on the throne of David. The throne of David did not exist in her day nor in Christ's day when he was on the Earth. So do you take that literally or not? If you do, you've got a problem, because then Jesus Jesus has yet to fulfill that prophecy. You can also find virtually a thousand prophecies in the Old Testament that are left enigmatic if Jesus doesn't return to fulfill those prophecies by literally ruling on the planet Earth. So the first thing you'll discover today is that theologians are divided into two basic camps. Those that are premillennial, that believe in a literal millennium, and those that don't believe in a literal millennium. They they allegorize it. Now, this amillennial view evolved under Augustine, became the official eschatology or doctrine, if you will, of the Catholic Church, and incidentally, continues in most Protestant faiths. If you take many of the mainline Protestant faiths, and I won't name names, you can fill in the blanks yourself, they are actually amillennial. That is, they don't really take literally these prophecies, and Revelation isn't the important one, really, in a sense. Revelation mentions the period of time but the the content and the mission and what happens in that is full, is filled is is, is laid out uh, primarily in the Old Testament but the point is that's the first basic division and what what's clear is many doctrines from the apostolic church from the days of Paul were not carried over into the catholic church and furthermore not carried over despite the successes of the reformation in other words most scholars that are independent, so to speak, uh, recognize the Reformation, as, as heroic as it was, didn't go far enough. There's another idea that's, uh, if you're a millennial, it has no meaning, really, but if you are premillennial, the other big question comes, this concept of the rapture of the church. Big controversy today, and we'll talk about that, especially when we get to the next letter, the letter to Philadelphia. But there is, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, some very embarrassing passages to many. Weird ideas, they really are. There's a point when all the Christians are going to be taken out, caught up in the air. You've got to be kidding. That's pretty weird stuff. And yet, Paul makes it very clear. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it's also alluded to in 1 Corinthians 15, the famed resurrection chapter. We'll talk more about this subsequently, for a lot of reasons. But the point is, that idea, you either take literally and and, uh, applaud it as our blessed hope, as Titus labels it, or you're embarrassed by it or kind of try to find a way to make it go away because it's pretty weird. It has some very weird implications. The so-called harpazo, the rapture of the church. And we'll talk more about that as we get into this a little further. But the point is, I want you to understand that these ideas were prevalent in the first century. Big many people try to argue that well this rapture idea was introduced by Darby in 18 in the early and in, in Mary MacDonald McDo, M- in the in, um, in the uh, early 1800s. No, they popularized it then, but we now find that there's a, uh, in the Greek Church, the Byzantine Church, we find sermons preached on this by Ephraim the Syrian. Uh, you can also find it biblically, and that's really, that's the real issue anyway. But the point is, this is even today among good Bible believing people who I believe are saved. There's still great debate on these topics. Now, why is there? Because, first of all, they, the, the, the Reformation didn't really deal with them explicitly. They had their hands full with this salvation issue. The Catholic Church was teaching that the Pope's the one that had the authority. That's how a major source of income was their indulgences. They adopted this concept of purgatory, which is not, not biblical at all. And your, your exposure there was a function of, uh, of uh, your relationship with the Pope. Not Jesus Christ. And that was a major source of income. And scandalous, it sounds to our ears, perhaps, but a very, very real part of history. In any case, so as we look at Sardis, we need to recognize, we can get some hint maybe, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Now, don't misunderstand my presumptions here. I'm not saying at all Protestant churches are dead. That's not my meaning. But certainly, there are major movements, there are major characteristics here that are In need of strengthening. Jesus goes on in verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, which are ready to die. For I have not found thy works complete before God. And remember in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 and 22. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this, that, and the other thing in your name? Cast out demons. Done miracles. And what does the Lord say? Depart from me, I never knew you interesting be watchful and strengthen the things which remain for they are ready to die i have not found thy works complete before god their works are inadequate now it's interesting that christ was looking for something from them that's rather interesting we don't often think of that but he was looking expect he had an expectation of something from them his instruction is to be watchful. And that, of course, is just echoes. You can just you can quickly, when you get home, take your concordance and look up verses from the New Testament. Romans 13:11, 1 Corinthians 16:13. We're supposed to watch for the wilds of the devil in 1 Peter 5:8. We're supposed to be watching uh, relative to temptation in Matthew 26:41. We're supposed to watch for his coming. Matthew 24, several verses, and, and uh, Mark 13, 1 Thessalonians 5:6. They're supposed to watch out for false teachers and so forth. It's interesting to me to notice Sardis is not like Smyrna where they have an attack from the outside. They don't seem to be under attack here. Neither are they necessarily victims of idolatry or false doctrines. It's not like they're being attacked from the outside, nor are they really in a normal sense attacked from the inside. They're just dead. That's disturbing to me. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received. Interesting. What a grand tradition the Protestant church has from the Reformation how many millions willingly in effect were burned at the stake when all they had to do is feign an acknowledgement of some kind and survive but that, in that sense they willingly chose not just to die but to be tortured to death there's a difference by the millions what a proud tradition and yet what, what did that bring us A tradition of taking the Bible seriously, a tradition of having the scriptures themselves in your lap so you can judge for yourselves. Things that were opposed by the rulers of that day. Remember how thou hast received and heard. It's interesting even in this day, when you go to Russia and other places, how hungry, how desperate, how appreciative people are for just a portion of Scripture. We take it for so for granted. You can find a copy of Scripture in any hotel room. We sort of, you know, take it for granted. When you see people, when you travel and see people with tears in their eyes, desperately grateful for just a copy of the scripture. Awesome treasure in their lives. Boy, does that that should be correcting our, our perceptions. <laughs> ben Franklin said it in a strange way, I guess. He said, when the well is dry, we know the worth of water. And Amos chapter 8 says, there's going to be a famine in the land, not of bread, but of my word. And I don't think there's any of us in this room that can comprehend what that might mean. Remember, therefore, thou hast received and heard. And hold fast and repent. By the way, the word repent is in the aorist imperative, which means it's a specific, definitive action. It's not a mood. It's not a continuous thing. It's something you do, in a sense, once and for all. It's an affirmative, definitive action. Repent. It's something you can do tonight when you go home before the throne of God definitively. I don't say do it here in our closing prayer, because if you're doing it right, you probably have tears and you would be laying on the floor. Do it at home when you can do it unembarrassed. Do it here if you like. Praise God. But then there's this interesting sentence that everybody misses. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come. Now wait a minute. What's that saying? That if you are watching, he won't come as a thief? That's rather a strange verse. Hold your place here and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are several passages like this, but probably none as crisp or clear as Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And I love the letters to the Thessalonians because these are letters to someone that spent three weeks with Paul. Paul went to Thessalonica, set up a church, was there three weeks, had to leave town, and now is corresponding with these new Christians that were Christians, as far as paul 's concerned for three weeks, and he reminds them of what he taught them about the rapture, about the Antichrist, and all that stuff fascinating paul 's epistles to Thessalonians are perhaps the most important prophetic passages in the New Testament next to the Revelation. But I want you to notice chapter 5, verse 1. First Thessalonians 5, 1. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Period. But after you read the rest of this letter, you'll realize there's an implied phrase. He comes as a thief in the night to those who are of the night. Not you. Notice what he says as he goes on. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You see what verse 2 implies. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief of the night to those who are in darkness. That's the thrust of Paul's theme here. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as of thee. But ye are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober-minded. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunk are drunk in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Very key verse. Verse 9. The church is not appointed to wrath. It's the only group in the scripture I know of that has that promise. This isn't the only place, it's one of the clearest places. There's a huge debate forthcoming in our study. Because we're going to see in the book of Revelation the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. And there are those on the earth that will be preserved through that. But I'm going to argue later for other reasons, but I'll warn you in advance that the church will not be preserved through it. It will be removed prior to that. And verse 9 is one of the many reasons that puts that all together consistently. We are not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Very interesting concept here. And he goes on, and you can read the, the passage, very key passage. But the point is, what this implies, in fact expresses rather clearly, is that the true believer that is looking for the Lord will not be caught by surprise. Don't misunderstand me. We don't know the date and the hour. The scripture makes it very clear, and we'll review that in our next session, that uh, uh, no man knows the date of the hour. And I, keep, I get about one, two manuscripts a week by various well-intentioned people trying to explain to me when the, when the rapture is coming. I usually promise to answer the letter one month after whatever date they're proposing because it saves me a lot of time. He could come tonight. He could come tomorrow. Next week. He might not come for 20 years. But the point is, we do know the times and the seasons, according to this passage, and I'm going to argue for many reasons that we clearly know that we are moving in to that season. Left and right all over the landscape, you can see positioning taking place. And it's very easy for all of us, and I'm guilty too, of seeing that come really soon. And it may. And yet... The longer it takes, praise God, the better, because it gives us time to do work for his kingdom. Every day that he tarries, every day that we have, is a day to accomplish work for his kingdom. And praise God when he says it's over, we're all for it, but in the meantime, we should work for the night is coming. But anyway, here in, back to Sardis, one of the things that the first three letters have no mention of And the last four letters do have a mention of is the second coming. In the first three letters, we don't find the second coming mentioned, specifically. In all four letters, we have an explicit promise that he's coming. Thyatira is warned that, (laughs) watch out, you know. (laughs) He says, I'll cast her into a bed and and so forth, and in the great tribulation and so forth, and uh, so on. In Sardis, he says here, same thing. He says, For I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. That's if you're not watching. Interesting, interesting inverse, if you will, of 1 Thessalonians 5. See, the idea is you should be watching, because if you don't, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. That's what he's saying. Therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. The word Sardis is very difficult to determine its meaning. I've read a number of commentaries, none of them too convincing. There are some that believe the word alludes to a remnant, a remnant. It was a major textual thing, and there's a lot of reasons why it might have been called that, but in any case, the the scholars that uh, try to analyze that believe that the Sardis may have meant the remnant. Oh, this idea of the... It's something else. It's interesting. He, he says this here. You'll not know... I'll come as a thief, and you'll not know what hour shall come. It's interesting when you study the ancient history of the city, that was their history. You know, Cyrus took it over. Antiochus took it over when they thought they were impregnable. They were caught by surprise. They were not watchful. They were not diligent. The church at Sardis was not watchful, was not diligent. And it's, it's a letter we should take to heart. Now, there's always a risk as you try to look at, and I try to present to you what the, why the theologians lay this out against church history, and I think it has some validity, but there's always a danger in that. First of all, one danger that may be wrong. It's just a view. But the other danger is, as you begin to look at these letters that way, it's easy to exclude yourself from them. As you study uh, Jezebel and you see the parallels that seem to be there between Thyatira and the papacy, and if you're not Catholic, you say, well, that's those guys. No. There's some of Thyatira in all of us. There's some idol worship in all of us. In other words, one of the things, on the one hand, it's useful, I think, to see the the march of history, especially as we get to the last letters because you'll begin to see we're at the tail end of that. Well, there's a risk is that we don't do what the Holy Spirit intends us to do and that's to apply these letters to ourselves all seven not just Philadelphia all seven Jesus says hold fast this is a present imperative it means it's a continuous action the admonition here I think is to avoid spasmodic Christianity I am guilty of that myself boy when I'm high I'm high throttle to the wall and when I'm down I'm down Please don't let the staff tell you how much in the flesh I can be around here. Please don't do that. And one of the prayers that I need to make more diligently is for consistency. Consistency. We all need that. I heard the staff say amen. Yeah, right. <laughs> I used to go, people say, how are things going? How are things going, Chuck? I said, better than I deserve. That was sort of a little line I used until someone says amen, brother. And then I stopped using that line. <laughs> Sardis was supposed to be looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Interesting observation. If you hold a post-tribulational view, if you're one of those that believes that the church is going to go through the tribulation and not be raptured until the end of the tribulation, you've got a big problem. Because then Jesus cannot come for at least seven years. And that's a very strange issue. But it's a very real issue. Because many, many people you'll run into. Maybe some in this room. And I'm not here to offend anyone. And it's not something that need to affect your <laughs> salvation. I often joke and say, if you happen to be post-tribulational of you, don't worry about it. We'll explain it to you on the way up. It's not a problem. <laughs> but it's a practical matter, and we'll be talking more about this as the book unfolds, because these issues are going to continually confront us. But the post-tribulationist has a very strange problem, because the, he, he, in effect, has no way to deal with what's called the doctrine of eminence. Clearly, the New Testament teaches that Jesus his book followers were to expect him at any moment. You can find many, many verses that nail it to the wall. And it's hard to hold that theology if you have the view that the rapture is preceded by any series of events. And that's one of the problems of post-tribulationalism. That's why Donald Gray Barnhouse used to kid my friend Walter Martin. He'd always come in the office and say, Sad day, sad day, Jesus can't come back today. That was his way. Walter was a neat guy, but he happened to be post-tribulation. Of course, Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, used to, who was obviously very pre it was, it was his way of needling. I love a sign. In fact, I got I think I'm going to get one from my office which says over my desk, Perhaps today. And when you visit me, you'll know what that means. Right? Okay, anyway. One last thing. It's interesting. He who walks hand in hand with Christ will not be taken unawares by his second coming. I encountered that phrase, and I like that. I'm reminded, of course, of Enoch in, in Genesis chapter 5 he walked with God and I don't think that was a casual stroll and God took him before the flood Enoch was not mid-flood or post-flood he was pre-flood So, okay. <laughs> verse 4 thou hast a few names here again names again but alright thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments and they walk with me in white for they are worthy and again it's interesting thou hast a few names a remnant If you study the various dispensations throughout the scripture, it's interesting that in each period of time, it's always a very modest remnant that God deals with. The entire world, scientists estimate there was probably 2 billion people on the planet Earth during Noah's flood. And it's interesting that God chose 8 people. Well, I've got to count 9 because Enoch was pulled out beforehand. But there were 8 people on the Earth at the flood, that God preserved through the flood. As you go through history, it's always a remnant. The Babylonian captivity finally came to an end on the very day that had been predicted by the prophets. Cyrus the Persian released them to go home, rebuild the temple. And out of the entire nation in captivity, less than 50,000 went home. The whole return from the exile, the whole rebuilding of the temple, done by what? 50,000 people, which in terms of the whole nation, pretty modest. The rest were comfortable in Babylon and stuck around, despite the fact that Cyrus gave financial incentives to go home. He made donations for the temple. He gave them an incentive to go home—less than fifty thousand, about fifty thousand—return. Strange. We talk about these uh, these great eras spiritually, but it's always a small remnant that is involved. Interesting. Come from the semiconductor industry, and if you know anything about a semiconductor plant, it's all based on yield. And one of the things you learn, you almost don't care what the yield is if the circuits that do work are worth enough. You follow me? And sometimes in certain special applications, you'll accept a very modest out of 500 possibles on a wa- wafer. If you get two or three that work, you're thrilled because they're worth a fortune. As I got used to that very peculiar kind of statistics, I wonder if God isn't doing the same thing. Interesting. Verse 5. He that overcometh. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. Here's the garments again. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, garments, as you, I think you're all aware, if you've done any biblical reading, you're aware that garments are used synonymously of, of one's condition. And our garments, Isaiah tells us, are as filthy rags in the classical expression of it from the King James if you read the Hebrew it says our righteousness are as used menstrual cloths a little more graphic it's interesting that of course the garments in white are really idioms referring to their righteousness are they righteous because of their works no that's, that's a critical study you need to undertake to understand that salvation comes by faith not works the righteousness that is operative here is a righteousness imputed to them by the Father on behalf of the Son. And uh, one thing you know when you read the, read the parable of the wedding guest, the one that was bid there and then he's, he's thrown out because have the right garment. You need to understand the host provided the garment. And he didn't have one provided by the host, he was in big trouble. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And then we get to this very difficult phrase. This really has a lot of people hung up. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now the first thing to recognize, he's saying he will not blot out his name. But validly I have to acknowledge that does imply that there are those that he might blot out, and that hang, that causes a lot of people to get hung up on this whole issue of eternal security. Because there's a presumption, that the book of life are those that are saved. And if your name's in there once, can it be blotted out? Becomes in some people's mind the big issue. Now, let me separate the two parts of it. First of all, I will not blot out. He says he's not going to blot out his name. That's the assurance that's here. And yet, I understand why people that makes people nervous. You need to understand that there's a lot of scholastic debate. Many different authorities have slightly different views as to what the book of life, in fact, is. First of all, there are only two books of generations in the Scripture. One is the generations of Adam in Genesis 5, and the generations of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. They're both genealogies. One is a genealogy unto death, the first Adam. The other one is a genealogy unto life, the last Adam. There's that distinction. It's interesting that the psalmist in Psalm 69, verse 28, expresses the hope that the wicked will be blotted out of the book of the living, so that implies that the book of the living, what, whether that's the same or not, is a, a point of scholastic debate. Is the book of the living referred to by the Psalmist the same as the Book of Life in Revelation? A lot of people have different views on that. Some of the authorities believe that the Book of Life is analogous to the register that the cities had. The cities kept a register of their citizens. They were put in there when they were born and they were plotted out when they were died. It's just a register. By analogy, they feel that this is a register of the citizens of heaven. And Christ does indeed confess them because that's mentioned in Matthew 10 and Luke 12, as well as mentioned here. He says here that I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Some feel that the book of life is a list of those for whom Christ died. And so by that view, what's implied is that he died for all of us. I'm not getting into the limit atonement argument tonight. And that, uh, uh, see, the argument is made that no one will go to hell for their sins. They'll go to hell for failing to accept the provision that God has made for their sins. And that's a view, and those that hold that view would argue. Now, one this interesting thing, the book of life is mentioned not only here, but in Revelation 13, 8, 20:12, 8, and 15, 27, and 22, 19, or, put another way, seven times. You could guess that, couldn't you? Right. The real issue that underlies the concern about this verse is a diff- actually a, really a different issue, a related issue. And that's the issue, can you lose your salvation? And there are good scholars, on, obviously, on both sides of that issue. I had a very memorable event some months ago. I was before an audience of several thousand down in, in, in Orange County. And as usual at that thing, after the, the, the formal talk, there's usually a group that comes, hangs around the podium for questions afterwards, just directly. And that crowd of, I don't know, 50 or 60 windles down to, you know, as the hours get later at night, it it thins out. There was a guy and two of his followers there that you can always tell when people are asking a question whether they're really looking for an answer or they're looking for a fight. And this guy was obviously, as he started asking questions, I could tell he was where he was headed. He was just looking to debate this whole issue of eternal security. And uh, I was tired and just not in the mood for that. I think when I'm tired is when the Holy Spirit can use me the most. When I'm alert and full of all the idioms, they probably get in the way. But when I'm tired and just burn out, that's when the Holy Spirit probably can go to work. Because anyway, he got to the point where he said, Well, you think I can lose my salvation? And I couldn't resist. I said, I think you can. And I said it partly out of mischief and partly out of fatigue because I just didn't want to fight him. But I'll never forget the look on his face. Because he knew what my real position is. And he was ready to take me on. And I said, No, I think you can lose your salvation. And I remember he went literally ashen. He went white. And he sputtered. He didn't know where to go from that. He didn't expect me to yield. See? But he didn't like where he ended up. <laughs> and as I realized, I had him. I let him stew in that a while. I just sort of left that be my position for a couple of exchanges. And then I finally says, you can probably lose yours. I know I can't lose mine. Because I know whom, in whom I've believed and what I have committed unto him against that day. And uh, and I also notice that in John 7, he points out that all the Father gives to me shall come to me, and whosoever cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then he also can brag to the Father, of those that you've given me, save one, of course, Judas, I have lost none. If one person can lose their salvation, Jesus didn't do his job. For in John 10, he makes that whole business that, uh, 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 that no one can pluck them out of my hand. He says, no one can next verse, no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. Hey, there's two hands involved. And they're not one's his father's, one's his. That's all the security I need. But in John 17, in, in the prayer before the Father, in the upper room, he yields the responsibility of their security to the Father. So if you analyze that carefully, you discover your security hangs on the righteousness of the Father. I don't know more, I don't think get any more secure than that. And Paul mentions in his epistles, speaking of the Holy Spirit, as a security deposit to make sure the transaction will be completed. That's incredible stuff. And what, is a, what is a seal? How can it be sealed unto redemption if the seal can be broken? It's meaningless. A seal is a seal only if it can't be broken. That's the, that's the, the meaning of the word. We won't get into a whole study tonight of eternal security, except um, uh, you need to know, if nothing, if at least what my view is. Not just make it correct. You need to determine these things for yourself. It's very, very important. One of the questions you want to ask yourself as we sort of explore the letter to Sardis, quite apart from the fact that it may involve a heritage that would involve many of us in this, in this room. Let me just let me just ask candidly, how many of you in this room have had some of your background, substantial part of your background, in one of the major Protestant denominations? Can I see a show of hands? See, that's most of us. My hand's up too. And, and, I, and I, I praise God for the instruction and the blessings I've had through that background. And yet... It's imperfect and it's important to understand that. But the real question as we explore the book of the Sardis is is your name written in the book of life? We use those idioms so comfortably is it? let me ask you that, how do you know if it is? You say my my name's in there great how do you know? And the other question is, is there anything more important in your life? Is there any higher priority in your existence than to make sure your name is in that book? This is not an academic exercise. This is the most vital question in your existence. It's more important than the spouse you pick to go through life together. That's probably the second most important decision you make in your life. What's your number one decision? Is your name written in the book of life? Critical issue. And I'll suggest it's got nothing to do with eschatology. Jesus might come tomorrow, but that ain't the point. He might come for you tomorrow. I think we all are surrounded by examples. Whether it's health, an accident, or who knows what. You you, you look through life and you realize that most people are caught by surprise. No one generally plans their exit. There are a few exceptions, I guess, that Kevorkian gives us assistance to and so forth, but that's not what we're talking about here, I hope. But none of us know where we're headed. None of us know what a day may bring, or a week, or a month. Do you know for sure that your name is in the, in the book of life? I'm going to encourage every one of you to be sure of that. There are lots of ways to do that. And I'm not necessarily expecting you to put a ribbon on that one tonight, necessarily. That's a deep issue. Yet, I don't want to close the door to that. If anyone has a doubt about that, they can seal their eternity in the privacy of their own will during our closing prayer. You can nail to the wall, so to speak, that decision. In the privacy of your own will, we won't have an altar call. It's a very popular idiom of commitment in our in our evangelical culture. We could do that. We're gonna just when we finish, we'll have a word of prayer and we'll stand. And you, in the privacy of your own will, in communion with the eternal God, can simply ask Him. It's available for the asking to have your name in the book of life by committing yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I will suggest, in fact, urge you at some time, doesn't have to be a night, can be at your comfort. God, Jesus says, he that confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father. He that denies me, well, I'll die. So you want to confess him before men. That's one reason they often have an altar call. That's a way of demonstrating publicly that you've made that commitment. I'm going to suggest to you, since there's so many here from so many different backgrounds, is that uh, number one, make that commitment to you personally, by you personally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's all about relationship, not religion. But then, having done that, I'm going to urge you to share that. First of all, with someone you trust spiritually. It can be someone that brought you here, someone that you know here, one of the elders. Come down and see me if you like, I'd be honored. We'll pray together. Or it can be when you get back with your other fellowship or your home Bible call, whatever. But you do want to, then, of course, declare it. Because in doing so, you bring glory to God, and that's what it's all about. We get down, of course, to this last phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Now, it interests me, I don't think it's accidental, that the, three, the first three letters have the promise of the overcomer outside the letter, and the last four have it inside the letter. And it's the last four that also mention the second coming. I believe the last four churches, if they represent historical churches, they represent churches that endure right up until the end. We know that Thyatira has an explicit promise that they're going to go the ones that don't repent are going to go into the Great Tribulation. Well that interests me right away because that means that's an exception. You see, if you remember going back here, it says that Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that committed adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent. See, in other words, if they repent, they won't be. So I believe that Thyatira I personally believe Thyatira will endure to the end and be in the great tribulation. Sardis appears to be that way also, and Laodicea, we'll discover, also is. Philadelphia is unique among the seven that's promised to be pulled out prior to. We'll we'll look at that next time. We'll get into all that next time. But I believe one, one suggestion I give to you, and let you study it diligently on your own, come to your own conclusions. But I think the last four, in some respects, are together structurally here. Again, let's remember that Sardis was not troubled by an attack from the outside. It was not troubled by a particular heresy from the inside. It was simply a dead church. A truly vital church will always be under attack. A truly vital church will always be under attack. If the world finds no fault with your church, it's a dead church, by definition. Interesting. Interesting. That's one reason people come up to me and say, Chuck, what can we do for your ministry? Pray for it. Pray for it. If you enjoy these fellowships, if you enjoy these studies and things, my urgent request is that you pray for this ministry. God is doing some incredible things. We've got uh, things going on all over the world. It's something I just can't, I'm just amazed at. And yet, I believe it's because of prayer. We have some several hundred people across the country that have committed their time, this portion of their time, just to pray for this ministry. We sometimes say that uh, house, or K-House, as it's called locally, is the house that prayer built. So if you care for this ministry, if you're getting blessed by this ministry, if the Spirit leads you, I urgently ask you to pray for this ministry, because it is a battle. And because it's a battle and we encounter the warfare, we know we're, at least in some small ways, relevant. And when we don't have those kinds of things, then uh, we know that we somehow are not on a track that's uh, bringing down strongholds. And so I strongly encourage you to pray for this ministry. Letter to Sardis. Now next time, we take what's probably to many the most exciting letter in the series. The letter to Philadelphia. And we can't get into this letter very far without coming head on to many of the major eschatological, that is end time, uh, doctrines of the church. And uh, we'll hold, we hold some views, and we, of course, won't be shy in expressing those, but we'll try to show you uh, why we do and what the alternative views are. But the letter of Philadelphia is a very, very key letter. The last, if, if my perception is correct, the last four letters are around, in fact, all seven are around us all the time, but the last four principal uh, themes, I think, go right into the end. And, of course, we also will get into Laodicea, and Laodicea may have some surprises for you. There's some verses there that are often quoted that I think are widely misunderstood. But I'll also share something else with you. Uh, When we've gotten the seven letters in view in these studies, I'm going to show you something else that may come as an absolute surprise in terms of the design structure, not just of these seven letters and these seven churches, but what the implications are for Matthew 13 and the Gospels, how these are anticipated there, And what may even, that probably would have even surprised Paul in writing his own letters. Some surprises there. And we'll deal with that when we have the whole series in view. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before your throne of grace and gratitude that we can come before your throne without an appointment that you're always ready to hear us, Father. For indeed, Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we just thank you for the the revelation that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for these letters and their instruction. And Father, we would pray through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. You promised, Father, that he would teach us all things. So we ask, Father, that he would indeed minister to us, that he would illuminate each of us with those specific insights that you have there for us, that you might accomplish your purpose in each of our lives. For indeed, Father, we seek your best will in our lives. And Father, we first of all pray for any among us who have the slightest doubt about whether their name is written in your book of life. We pray, Father, that you would give such no peace at all until they rest in you. We pray, Father, that you would just banish any complacency or indifference on that issue. We pray, Father, indeed, that if there's any among us, they would simply pray right now in the privacy of their own will an acknowledgement of a need for you, Father and a desire for that destiny you've provided that's so fantastic there's nothing we can do to earn eligibility for it but rather than to be entirely dependent on the redemption that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ and that's available simply for the asking indeed father we also pray for each of us that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and the ministry of your word That you would increase in each of us discernment of the churches around us and ourselves. That we might understand these seven letters as they apply to our person, our walk, our lives. We pray, Father, that you would indeed deliver us from bondage. Free us from empty rituals without meaning. Free us from forms without substance. Father, just increase in us a personal walk with you moment by moment, day by day. We ask this, Father, also that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would increase in each of us an anticipation an expectancy of our blessed hope the appearing of our Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that you would instruct us that we might ever more clearly discern the signs of the times. And that we might, through all of this, be ever more effective for you. That these issues would indeed alter our personal priorities. Help us, Father, to avoid having the urgent preempt the important. Help us, Father, to alter our priorities in accordance with, With the goals of your kingdom. Father, we pray that you'd give each of us a discernment and awareness of that unique ministry you have for each of us in these days. For we commit ourselves completely without reservation. Before you, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we commit ourselves. Amen.